At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello everyone, I'm James Abbott and welcome to a brand new monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Now, it's fitting, halfway through Lent, that we've called this podcast At the Foot of the Cross, where we should place everything, really. And what it is, in a nutshell, is a monthly audio digest of what's going on here. Updates from our work areas, so it could be pro-life matters, environmental concerns, aspects of Catholic life and worship, international work, social action, safeguarding, you name it. If there's news on any given subject, you'll hear it here. But for March's podcast, we're keeping it pretty simple, to be honest. It's an introductory offering. And joining me to launch at the foot of the cross is our General Secretary, Canon Christopher Thomas. Canon Chris, how are you? Good morning, James. I'm very well, thank you. Good. So as I say, yeah, very much an introduction. Mm. Um, We've got the, the tragedy of the war in Ukraine. We have Lent, of course, that we're halfway through at the moment. And a desire to see more of our people back in church, hopefully. Pray for that, of course. But first, let's start at the very beginning. Now, I get questions all the time about what is a bishop's conference? You know, how do you how can you work for a bishop's conference? Because people see tables, they see senior clerics, they build an impression of what they think a bishop's conference is. So why don't you tell us what a bishop's conference is? Well, a a bishop's conference uh, is basically a gathering of bishops. We always have to remember uh, in the Catholic Church that the bishops are the successors of the apostles. So if you could think of the Bishops' Conference as a a modern body of bishops, just as the apostles gathered around Jesus, so the bishops in a particular area gather together to do what the apostles did, to preach the gospel, to make known the person of Christ in the world, and to address the issues of their time. And so even though the world has changed, the sort of succession of the apostles through our bishops has been a constant factor in our church. And it's where we get that apostolicity that we profess each week in the creed. And our bishops are the point of unity in each of our dioceses. So a a bishop's conference is a gathering of bishops together to exercise what's called collegiality. That's the way in which they um, look not only at their own diocese, but at the geographical area for which the conference is constituted. And they determine what are the pastoral actions that we need to take at a national level, which have grown through our domestic work within each of our particular churches, within each of our dioceses. So the first thing to say about a bishop's conference is that it's not us who work here in 39 (laughs) Eccleston Square, Um, I'll come on to that in a moment, it is the bishops themselves who gather in this collegial action, they support each other in their work, there is a sense of fraternity in that work, but also with that vision to the church across the countries of England and Wales, but also the church, how does it speak into the life of England and Wales and beyond? So that's really what a bishops' conference is. It's something that grew very much out of the uh, Second Vatican Council, the the, the desire that there should be a more formal idea of of bishops working collaboratively together for the common good of those who live in the diocese and beyond the diocese in the world. So then we have that wonderful word, secretariat. Yes. Um, And some people say to me, oh, well, what's that then? Do Do you work for the Catholic civil service? And that sort of makes me chuckle a bit, actually, because I can see the point. 
Um, tell us what the Secretariat is. Well, if you if you look in the Code of Canon Law, the Secretariat of the Bishops' Conference consists of three officers, the President, the Vice President and the General Secretary. And in fact, the President, Cardinal Nichols, the Vice President, Archbishop Malcolm McMahon in Liverpool, and myself are called the Presidency of the Conference. And uh, and we have particular roles. So, for instance, in, in, in just over a week's time, we are going to Rome because in between our, our visits formally as a whole bishops' conference called our ad limina visits, mm. which take place every five to seven years, um, we have to engage with the offices of the Roman Curia to update them on the things that we talked about and things that are emerging in the country. So we, we've got that visit coming up. It's obviously been postponed because our last ad limina was 2018. But with the COVID pandemic, uh, we should have done this in 2020, which was impossible. So we're trying to do it now this month. So the Secretariat is basically an extension of the presidency. So obviously the bishops can't do all the work themselves, although they are the ones who set the agenda, they are the ones who set the priorities, and they are the ones who determine through their charism of governance, they are the ones who determine the priorities for the work of the bishops' conference. And obviously they can't do it themselves. They don't have uh, the ability because they've also got the pastoral governance of their diocese. Mm. So the Bishops' Conference Secretariat exists to support the bishops in that work of speaking both into the church in this world and also into the social uh, milieu that we exist within. It also has a role beyond England and Wales. So we have liaisons with other bishops' conferences and more generally to the church universal. So we are, are a little bit like the civil service, I would say, uh, not exactly. Exactly the same. I am not the Sir Humphrey of uh, <laughs> uh, of of the Bishops' Conference, but what we do is to support the bishops in that work. We support them to enact what they see as the pastoral priorities on that more general and national scale. Now we do have, of course, consultative bodies, agencies. There are Catholic societies, many organisations that we interface with. But also, when it comes to the Bishops' Conference, we have representatives, rather, rather poignantly, uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Eparchy, mm. the Syro-Malabar Eparchy. We have the Falklands. So when people think England and Wales, mm. Gibraltar, I mean, it's not just England and Wales, is it? That's right. And and, and so, so we've got the 22 dioceses in England and Wales. The other members of the conference are uh, the Bishop of the Forces, Her Majesty's Forces, which is uh, a constituent part of our work. Um, we have the two uh, eparchial bishops, uh, Bishop Kenneth Novakovsky for the Ukrainian eparchy, and also Mar Joseph Shramprikal, who is the uh, Sarah Malabar eparch, and they're formal parts of the conference as well. Mm. We also have uh, Monsignor Keith Newton of the Personal Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham, which is a constituent part of our of our Bishop's Conference too. And Abbot Hugh Allen, who is the Apostolic Administrator of the Prefecture of the Falklands and the Mission to the South Atlantic Sui Iuris, um, which is quite a, a, a mouthful. mouthful. It is a mouthful, but um, one of the interesting facts about Abbot Hugh, who is the abbot of the Premonstratensian uh, uh, Priory in Chelmsford, is that apart from the Pope, he has the biggest geographical jurisdiction in the world because the Pope has uh, has, uh, has universal jurisdiction and Hugh has the biggest other jurisdiction going all the way from Ascension Island down to uh, the South Atlantic and the Falkland Islands. Goodness. Um, so... They're also members of our conference. You talked about Gibraltar. Gibraltar actually is, comes directly under the Holy See. But Bishop Carmelo Zamet, who is the Bishop of uh, Gibraltar, has an observer status at our conference. So he will often come uh, once a year to our conference. And I know on the other occasion, he will go to the Conference of Spain so that uh, we are able to keep good relations uh, with our friends in Gibraltar. 
And of course, we uh, you have to explain the status to me, but we, we have a big Polish community over here, don't we, in England and Wales, and there there is the Polish Catholic Mission as well. That's right. The Polish Catholic Mission doesn't have the status of an eparchy, but it is an officially constituted mission who work collaboratively with the bishops of England and Wales to provide for uh, the a particular care and concern of the Polish migrant community here. Uh, Monsignor Stefan Wajcek, the rector of the mission, and I collaborate quite closely in issues that arise which are specific to the Polish community uh, in England and Wales, but uh, they're not actually formally part of the conference. Yeah. Well, you know, we will come on to Lent because obviously we're in the penitential season of Lent. Probably actually quite fitting that before that we, we can talk a little bit about war and the conflict clearly in Ukraine is, is in all our, our thoughts and prayers at the moment. Um, I know, of course, that the, it's just been announced that on Friday the 25th of March, Pope Francis will consecrate Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Give us a little update on, on Ukraine. Well, obviously, Bishop Kenneth is at the forefront of, uh, of this work. He is garnering support across the country and from many different areas, not simply the Catholic community, to support those Ukrainians who have a desire to come here to England and Wales to flee the appalling devastation that is being wreaked upon that country. Mm. Ukraine is suffering immensely. Um, We see it every single day on the news. So Bishop Kenneth is working alongside our agencies, two particularly, CAFOD, who have work in Ukraine with on-the-ground um, support, but also with CSAN, Caritas Social Action Network, and Raymond Friel, who is the chief executive officer of um, that agency, is working on a toolkit whereby people in parishes, people in our communities can actually look and see how they can help. One of the things that we have to remember is that what we think that people need in, in, in Ukraine is probably not what they need. Whereas what Raymond is doing is working with the Ukrainian eparchy, with Bishop Kenneth and his people, to ensure that when we are making donations, should they be physical donations to get stuff out to Ukraine, rather than just the donation of of money, which will be very carefully distributed. It's not going to be wasted. It's not going to be tied up in bureaucracy. It's going to be given straight to the point of delivery, which which is absolutely necessary at the moment. But we're making sure that what's going over is actually needed. So uh, Bishop Kenneth is working on that at the moment with Raymond to develop this toolkit, and hopefully that'll either go live today or tomorrow. And of course, you mentioned CAFOD, our agency for overseas aid and development, yes. and they, and, and apparently quite rightly, link in with the DEC. The That's correct. Yeah. So, so, so any donation to CAFOD will go through to the DEC. So, so we know that that's going to be used appropriately as well. Because they have those established networks, Absolutely. don't they? They're very well practiced at getting the aid to where it's sure. needed. Yes. Yeah. And 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 this has been demonstrated on many many occasions. And CAFOD are superb at doing this because they are one of the international partners of the government. Absolutely. Now it's right that we focus on Ukraine and we keep the people in particular in in our in our thoughts and prayers at this time and support the humanitarian relief effort. But it shouldn't go unnoticed, of course, that this is not the only war and conflict in the world. No, Um, there are many others. Yes. Uh, And in fact, Cardinal Nichols was speaking to us yesterday here uh, in Eccleston Square. He'd just come back from the Churches Together for England Forum. And as part of the Archbishop of Canterbury's discourse there, I think, if I remember correctly, he said that there are 64 areas of conflict currently in the world. 
most are being eclipsed at the moment because of the, of the, the terrible situation in Ukraine. But even I uh, saw a, a news report on Sky News the other night about Yemen, which is continuing to have so much difficulty. And yes, war is not of God. War is about selfishness. War is about the way in which uh, human ambition overcomes uh, the desire for that common good that God desires for everybody to live in. And so uh, we've got to keep all of those areas of conflict in our prayer uh, and support them as best we can. And it's easy when there is one particular highlighted area of the world, like Ukraine at the moment, very easy to forget those other areas. We have particular links, for instance, in the Cameroon and uh, the Diocese of Portsmouth is twinned with the Diocese of Bemenda. And they've had a huge amount of uh, continuing conflict going on there in that part of Cameroon. And, uh, and you know, that's part of, part of our work as well. The work in Myanmar, where there is not war, but political unrest at, mm. at home, you know, that, that's still part of our concern and the solidarity that we can show from England and Wales to these areas of, of conflict across the world, I think, is very, very important. But notwithstanding all of that, the war that is going on at the moment in Ukraine is of primary front and centre of our thoughts at the moment because of the immense impact that it's having on so many people and all of those people who are being displaced from their homes. It's a reality. And as I heard uh, somebody say on Sunday when I was uh, in a parish, their freedom is our freedom and therefore that's why it's so important. All the more appropriate then that we are really on our journey to the foot of the cross, yes. aren't we, at this, at this time in Lent. Yes. Let's focus on that, that spiritual side now. Now, Cardinal Nichols, in, in a message to schools a few weeks ago, actually, some weeks ago ahead of Lent, was sort of gently encouraging people back to church. We have had these rather traumatic two years, of course, the, the world has when it comes to the pandemic. But our churches are safe, aren't they? These, these are, we, we'd like to encourage people back to, our, to the beauty of the sacramental church. That's right. And, and a lot of people... Have, have said to me, you know, uh, that they would be concerned if we cut off live streaming and everything else. But, and that's right, because if you think about it, that, um, and you know, thinking of my own time as a parish priest, people who are housebound can feel very distant from the church and, and they may get a visit once a week from either a, a minister of Holy Communion or the priest or the deacon or, or pastoral uh, visiting teams. But um, for them to be able to tune in now and actually be part of Sunday Mass is very, very important. So I think, to use a Catholic phrase, we're looking at a both-and here. So it's it's both a return to church and a continuing of those streamed services so that people who can't normally get to church are able to participate. The bishops, over the past two years, have issued a number of statements developing this theme. The first was called the Day of the Lord, which was uh, an encouragement for people to come back uh, to the celebration of Mass. And that was followed by Sunday, it is our day, focusing on, on, the, on the nature of Sunday as, as a different day, uh, as a day where we celebrate the resurrection. And then most recently, honouring Sunday was a statement that the bishops put out where they said that it was really important now as we are moving from the, the pandemic phase into the endemic phase of COVID-19 uh, that we actually now come come back to church and churches are safe. I served on, uh, alongside Cardinal Nichols on the, uh, on the government's faith task force during COVID and we really worked very, very hard to ensure that the uh, environment in our churches was a safe environment for people to come into. Now we are moving into a different way of living. I mean, here in London, certainly, you can see that uh, that uh, people are, are now 
to use a phrase, getting back to normal, uh, whatever that normal is is going to be. Things have changed. We've all changed. We've all been touched by the drama and uh, the way in which COVID has, has touched all of our lives. I mean, none of us have been untouched. I mean, when I think back to those early days in March 2020 of the, of the beginning of the lockdown, the stark reality for me was highlighted by one thing, and that's the fact I live in central London, and yet every morning I could hear birdsong when I went out for a walk. Um, the fact that people were not bustling around the place, queuing to go into supermarkets, ensuring that uh, everything that we did was safe. Whereas in the past, because of COVID, we would, as it were, keep that social distance from each other. I think now it's time to come back together. And the most important place that we can do that is in our church at our Sunday worship. Because at the end of the day, why do we go to church? We go to church in the first instance and above all to honour God, to give thanks to God for the many blessings that he has just bestowed upon us, to give thanks to him for the life that we have. The second thing is that we go as a community to support each other in that journey of faith. We're not there as individuals, we're there as the communion of believers. And the third thing, which I think is often forgotten, is that when we come in to church and we leave church, we become a sign, a physical sign. I always used to joke with my parishioners because uh, in my last parish, I could guarantee you that at the Easter Vigil, we used to have the fire at the front of the church. And I could guarantee you every year the 48 bus would stop opposite the church. And I used to think to myself, all the people looking out and seeing, oh, what are those Catholics doing now, you know, uh, with the fire and candles and things. And I just thought, you know, we're a sign there that the church is alive. And I wonder how many of them went away on that bus. I don't know how many of them went away and actually thought, well, I wonder what they were about, because that's what we are. We, we have to be a physical sign to the world so that people can see that, that, that we are alive. And so I think of that Sunday gathering as the heartbeat of the church. It's an image I saw some time ago. The church gathers and it disperses into the world to do its work. The church gathers and it disperses into the world. It's like a heartbeat. And so we need to get back into that rhythm of heartbeat, of being at the heart of the church, which uh, is part and parcel of being a good Christian. Oh, I love that. It's very visual as well. Now, at the foot of the cross, our podcast, it will have scripture, prayer, reflection every month. Uh, this is obviously, as I say, very much an introduction. But would you give us something of a scriptural reflection for sure. this month? I've taken a part of uh, the gospel, uh, which is the parable of the barren fig tree. So I'll read it and then I'll just do a little reflection on it, if that's OK. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it, but found none. He said to the man who looked after the vineyard, Look here, for three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and finding none. Cut it down. Why should it be taking up ground? Sir, the man replied, leave it one more year and give me time to dig round it and manure it. It may bear fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. The image of the fig tree and the vine are often found together in the Old Testament as signs of God's blessing. In the book of Joel, which we actually began the uh, season of Lent with, with that very stark, now, now is the time. The book of Joel talks about, about the, the fruitfulness of the fig and the vine as a sign of God's blessing. So when Jesus uses the fig tree, it would be something that uh, his hearers would immediately recognise. I mean, it's not so much here because they don't grow very well in this, in this country. But um, 
I think that the fig tree is a sign of blessing. And both Matthew, Mark and Luke all have stories about fig trees. Matthew and Mark have a direct story of Jesus and the fig tree. And in both cases, in one uh, he curses the tree and in the other it's cut down. But here Jesus narrates the story as a parable. And it's the gardener that is key to the life of the tree because he pleads for it to be given one more year, time to produce good fruit. And so to put this in the context of where we are, Jesus is travelling towards Jerusalem and uh, he continues, he's continuing to teach, to preach, to spread the good news. And this context gives this richer meaning to this little gobbit from uh, the Gospel of Luke. So the owner of the vineyard wants the tree to be cut away so the land could be more profitable. But it's the vine dresser, the man who looks after the vineyard, who does this pleading for clemency and says that he will give the tree special treatment. He will dig it, he will water it, he will feed it, and let's see if it produces fruit next year. So you could say that the owner of the vineyard is God the Father, and the vine dresser, the man who looks after it, is Jesus. And the cutting of the tree, you could say, is the judgment, and in fact the bit that precedes this is a little bit about judgment. But it's Jesus who asks for more time, It's Jesus who asks for more time to continue his mission to feed, to water, to dig around and to call people to that life that he's giving, to call to repentance, the call to embrace his teaching. And that's what brings good fruit. So Lent is our time to be fed, to dig deep into our spiritual roots, to be watered, to be nourished like Jesus will do to that tree in that parable so that we can bear the good fruit. But the key thing is, there is still time. How many of us have fallen off the Lenten wagon? How many of us have said, oh yes, well, I've given up now. I've had that bar of chocolate or I've had the slug of wine or whiskey. Lent's gone. Well, it hasn't. There is still time. Lent begins every day. It's something that I've always believed in. Every morning we begin our Christian conversion to Christ. We plant ourselves in his presence every morning and say, how can I be a better disciple? So there is still time. And we are walking to Jerusalem, to the foot of the cross. But we must never forget, we go to the foot of the cross, yes, but we go beyond into the garden of the resurrection where we see the beauty of the risen Christ and where he calls us by name, just as he did to Mary. She didn't recognise him until the name was called. And when we get to that Easter vigil where the fire is burning, the candle is lit, and we hear the bells rung in the church again, and we sing the Gloria and the Alleluia returns, that's our moment of really embracing what it means to be a Christian. So what we've got to do is to get Jesus' teaching at this time, as we journey, just as he's journeying towards Jerusalem, into our hearts. Get the teaching in there. Get his love in there. Get prayer going. Get all of those fasting and almsgiving and all of those practices of Lent to help us. That's the the digging, the manuring, the watering of our lives at the moment. Because the core of this time of grace in Lent is that we bear fruit. And the fruit is that we become more effective disciples, more effective witnesses of the gospel. What I really picked up on there as well, much to pick up on, but, but what rested with me was maybe don't use it as an excuse either. I think many of us, when we fail the first time, you know, however you quantify failure, then say, oh, well, it's done, mm. you know, despite the fact there are another 20, 30 days, whatever. Oh, absolutely. And, and start and again. Start again. So we will, in future podcasts, have our points for prayer. 
But, yes. at, but at the minute, obviously, refugees and the displaced from all wars, but our focus on, on Ukraine, the elderly, the vulnerable, the isolated, Indeed. those worried about going to church should yes. be in our prayers. And, and, and also remember that, 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 you know, that isolation runs very deep in people. Mm. The Holy Father, in his message for Lent this year, encouraged people to, to move out of the virtual world, actually. He said, become more concrete in your relationships. And I think that that's a really important thing because the number of people who did suffer from that isolation... I mean, I live alone, and there's a little bit of a monk in me, and so, and so I quite like my aloneness. But there were odd occasions during the lockdown, certainly the first lockdown in March 2020 up to June, where there was that sense of loneliness, even to the point where going out you didn't meet anybody when you mm. went for your walk. You know, if I can feel it as a, as a reasonably robust person, those who feel it day in and day out, you know, that I think that holding them in our prayer is very, very important. And yeah. also being practical about how can we do something to alleviate it. Literally being in communion was a very difficult thing. It was. And maybe, maybe, just maybe we can value it a bit more now I because of our so. experiences. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. Because don't forget that the communion of the church is not simply about receiving communion. It's about that being together. And that's why, as I said, when we were, I talked about the three reasons for going to church, about the worship of God, about the coming together to support each other in prayer, in our faith, in, our, in the way in which we act. And then the going out, which is the sign to the world. You know, I think that communion that we experience when we're in the church is very, very important. And there are those who have now begun to experience it in a new way through that virtual link, which is so valuable. Absolutely. Right. Well, that's just about it for our introductory at the foot of the cross. But I am going to ask you this. What's crossing your desk at the moment? What are you allowed to tell us? Well... The, the thing that, that's most crossing my desk at the moment are responses from the synod process, ah. uh, which uh, uh, is very much at the forefront of the Holy Father's mind and uh, of the mind of people in our parishes and our communities in this country. As you know, the Holy Father has asked us to embark upon a synodal way. And the phrase I've been using when I've been talking to people about this is that what's going to happen in October 2023 in Rome is not the prize. The process of what we're doing now is the prize because what this new synodal way is offering the church is a new way of being. It needs to get embedded into our DNA, into our very hearts and minds and how we do things. The key constituent part, which you would imagine being like breath to a, a Jesuit pope, is this whole question of discernment. Because what we have to do is, is not come with our issues about what's good about the church and what's bad about the church, but to sit in front of the Lord and to pray and to see what the Lord emerges. What, what does he draw out of our hearts so that that communion, that participation and the mission of the church is going to be enhanced in every respect by every prayer that is offered by God's people in this process. And so dioceses and communities around the country have been having these listening and engagement processes where this prayerful discernment has been um, really fruitful and the collation process is now taking place so that the diocesan submissions can come into our office here and we can begin the process with the bishops of what's called the national synthesis of all of those submissions that come in. And that's something I'm holding very much in my prayer at the moment, that this will be not just a good report, because anybody can write a good report, but it is something that actually gets embedded into the life of the church. It's not about what happens in 2023 in Rome, important though that is. 
but it's what's happening now in our churches. The people gathering around their bishop as the point of unity to come back to the bishops, the purpose of the bishops' conference. The bishop in his diocese is the point of unity of the diocese. He is the one who holds the communion because if you remember, in every Eucharistic prayer, we pray for the Pope, we pray for our local bishop, and we pray for each other. So those three levels of communion are actually expressed every time we go to Mass. And that really is the most important thing, that the process of listening, of being respectful of each other's positions, and of discerning what is the Spirit asking us to do now so that the communion of the faithful, the participation of all who are the baptised, and um, the, the mission of the Church is furthered. And to be honest, James, if I can highlight one thing which I think is really important, is the novelty in what the Holy Father has said. Because there's nothing new about the Synodal Way. You only have to go back to the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 15 with the Council of Jerusalem to see its origins. It was reinforced in Lumen Gentium, which is the document on the Church from the Second Vatican Council. And Pope St. Paul VI instituted the Synod of Bishops as a continuing process of that council so that things can be discussed at that level. But the novelty that the Holy Father has introduced is that we need to look beyond the church. So the fact that he has specifically mentioned our ecumenical partners and our interreligious partners and people of no faith at all, we should be engaging with them to actually ask, what do you think of the church? How does it impact on your life? What do you, would you like to see it doing? And I think that that's a real blessing for us because it expands that notion of the people of God. If we had a narrow view of church, we would say this was certainly held many years ago, that the only means of salvation is in the Catholic Church. Well, the Second Vatican Council said something much richer. What it said was is that the means of salvation are within the church, but the means of salvation, we cannot constrain it, we cannot hold it but it extends into the whole of humanity to different varying degrees. And I think that that is something that the Holy Father is trying to get across here, that there is that universal salvific will of God that all be saved is something we need to embrace. And by dialoguing with our ecumenical partners of other Christian denominations, our religious partners from other world faiths and people of no faith at all, will all enrich this process of listening, of discerning and of bringing to the fore what is it that makes us more effective in the mission of the church. Well, what about our people in terms of Catholics? I, I know you've talked about the, the widening, of course. Some people say to me, is this Vatican III, a third Vatican Council? And some people say, is church teaching going to change? I mean, th these are the sort of very general big questions I hear. How do we answer those? Well, I think that, that what the Holy Father is asking us to do is to be bold. One of the words that he's used all the time in his pontificate is to speak with parasia, which is sort of with candor, with boundless confidence. And will things change? We don't know. At the end of the day, we always have to remember that the process of discernment and the charism of discernment is truly held by the bishops. And so the image of the Pope gathering all the bishops of the world around him in Rome with the bishops having consulted the people in their areas is exactly the same and analogous to the bishop gathering his people around him in his diocese them and, and, and doing the same process because the universal is reflected in the local, the local in the universal. Will things change? The Holy Father is the one who has to discern that, working with the bishops, working with the people he calls around him. We will have to wait and see. Well, as you say, it, it doesn't just end in 2023. No. There's, it's a bigger process than that. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for, for the reflection, for your insight, for updating us. Looks like we'll be back 
during Holy Week with our, our first proper at the foot of the cross. So um, I look forward to seeing you then. Indeed. Thanks, James.